Blog Talk Radio. Right, Africa is the center of the world. It's the nucleus that makes all things go. We welcome you to another episode of Africa on the Move. Today is December 22nd, 2019. We bring to you Africa on the Move. As we will attempt to address the theme today, Part 3, Telling the Truth and Fighting for Freedom. That's right. We're going to tell the truth and we are fighting for freedom. In this context of this thing, like always, we will start off with discussing what's going on in our world, in our community, and then we'll follow up with the discussion of the thing. And like always, you are invited. 
Call in at 323-679-0841 to share your views and your perspectives. So right now, like always, you know how we get started with our party. We'd like to bring you uh, our political panelists and analysts for, for today's program. Our first panelist and this is Brother Anthony. We'd like to welcome you to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Pardon, Brother Anthony. Now we'll bring in Brother Haki. Welcome, Brother Haki, to Africa on the move. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kanaki Mashoki, Colonel with African Awareness. And my thing, of course, is all about institution building. Let me tell you, Brother uh, Brother Africa, I recently read an article, and it talks about the fact that in terms of the treatment of, of workers in the capitalist society, it uh, doesn't bode well in terms of, you know, uh, the humanity, you know, of uh, human existence. And the article talks about the nature of the economy in terms of how it treats human beings. And so human beings are some type of protective unit. But let me just, just go a little bit into this article. I think it's very, very interesting. Now, the notion that business activity, you know, the buying and selling of goods and services determines prices, be it labor, commodity, prices, et cetera, right, has been debunked on numerous occasions. Uh, now, despite the reality, corporate media continues to promote the narrative, wealth, <clears throat> that wealthy played no part in the functioning of the economy. According to an article I recently read, it talked about Goldman Sachs, the investment bank, a uh, plan to advise investors to pursue low labor cost strategy. This is important people understand this. The strategy is to avoid investments in businesses where wages have been increasing. Instead, investments will flow to businesses where wages have been decreasing. And ironically, uh, when the correlation between wages and productivity or the quality of the product increases, it means more profit or higher returns on investments. So why would Goldman Sachs, the same firm sued in Malaysia for death and corruption, espouse a policy to punish a company for good governance? Uh, it is okay. <clears throat> excuse me. It is. Is it for profit or is it a more notorious motive? I suspect the motive is more nefarious, and although the capitalist mindset believes wages continue to rise, the less possibility for more profit for them. That's debatable. It does not consider, of course, low wages equal low sales and declining profits, despite government spending. The argument can be made profits are secondary, with the primary motivation being control. For example, recently, um, Standard Toilet, out of the UK, a company out of the UK, created a toilet specifically to imperil blood flow to the legs if you're on the toilet beyond five minutes. Obviously, if the bathroom breaks potentially cuts into profits, would it not be expedient to deduct the bathroom break time from lunch break? In relative terms, this seems more humane than placing time limits on bodily functions. Of course, if the intent is to consolidate control over employees, why even consider the inhumanity of the policy that dehumanizes? Pursuit of control does not see humanity. Now, the process of this control and dehumanization is embedded deeply in capitalism. For African and working class people, uh, the proposition has always been, this is historically true, how can the wealthy and corporations benefit at the expense of everybody else? Paradoxically, as the economy declines, the need for greater control must increase, along with less 
tangible benefits or less profits to the wealthy and our corporations. If the system deems African or working class people have no tangible benefits to provide, in other words, they can't profit off of them, then control is simply not enough. These non-productive people simply become an impediment to the system. In the words of Trump, they must they can either return to their country of origin, their shithole country of origin, or they can face the consequences that comes with staying in the country which is developed. So it seems to me that this is a fundamental question, philosophical question that the um, African community has been addressed. And that is a question in terms of are you human beings or are you a production of unit, a production unit of production? If you're a unit of production, then of course everything is fine. But if you in fact see yourself as a human being, then it's simply something that you have to fight for. But in order to adequately fight for that which is right, then you have to become organized. So you need those institutions to clarify the position because too many of us in the society deem ourselves as you know uh, units of production. As such, we uh, like all units of production. We got to be understand that the point that the capitalists become tired of that unit and it's no longer uh, productive, then it gets rid of that unit. And the human context is also true of human beings. When you get tired of human beings who serve no productive capacity in terms of creating wealth for the rich, then you got to, you got to get rid of them. So it's a very very simple proposition. So it seems to me that you know people in the African community need the institutions ask that question. You know, if in fact you're human, then you got to fight for that right. It's not a given. So I think, you know, I think that people have to seriously give some consideration in terms of urgently building these these institutions. And brother Africa, I just want to thank you for having me on the show. Thank you, Brother Haki, Father Brother Haki. Welcome to Africa on the Moon, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, Brother Africa. Um, my name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Satan is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. All right, panelists. Welcome, everyone. Um, as you know, today is the 22nd of December, and today we're going to discuss part three of the three-part series, Telling the Truth and Fighting for Freedom. But to do this, like always, let's start off with our first segment on what's going on in your world and the community. We start with you, Brother Anthony. Okay, a couple of things. Um, one, um, uh, let's see, uh, the U.S. government, uh, the president of the U.S. government, signed an executive order recently. Uh, about a about a week or so ago, uh, you know, uh, barring uh, anti-Semitism on college campuses in the U.S. And the effect of that is to uh, and uh, in doing that, they uh, it adopted uh, the definition of anti-Semitism used by uh the uh Israeli uh lobby. Uh I don't recall the uh the abbreviation of it. But the effect is uh to stifle any criticism of uh of uh Zionist policy in uh in Palestine 
and to um, and to try to end support and advocacy for the uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement uh, spearheaded by uh, Palestinian students on uh, these uh, campuses uh, throughout uh, the uh, imperialist uh, sector of the world. And, uh, you know, stifle any criticism of our policy toward Israel. And also, uh, Donald Trump was impeached uh, last week by uh, the uh, House of Representatives. And uh, people should understand this does not mean that he is or will be removed from office. So, uh, uh, and uh, that's up to the Senate. So, uh, you know, uh, follow uh, these developments very closely. Thank you, Brother Anthony. We're going to come back to you about those particular events that have taken place from your announcement. And right now, we'll go to Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, what's going on in your world and the community? I got to say, it's a good day, uh, Brother Africa. Uh, the, uh, the president of Ghana, uh, Brother Nana Akufo-Addo, uh, he actually confronted the West in terms of the exploitation of Africa. He talked about the fact that historically, this exploitation of Africa has been to Africa's demise. And his position, his position was that not only was it bad for Africa yesterday, it's bad for Africa in the future. So I applaud his, his tenacity in terms of standing up to the West and actually articulating you know, what everyone knows to be the truth. Uh, and what's interesting about this, he said this right to the president of France, uh, Macron. Macron. And uh, it's interesting because Macron just uh, uh, six months ago was in Burkina Faso, in which he actually uh, said to the president of the country, he said the problem with Africa is a problem of, um, is a problem of civilization. And so all the problem in terms of, uh, as, as the students saw, they saw the problem primarily being one of um, imperialism, you know, in negative impacts of Africa. But Chrome's position was not imperialism. It's the, simply the ineptitude or the, uh, the uh, lack of uh, creativity, lack of genius among African leaders which contributed to why Africa was suffering. So he, he didn't do that to this particular president of Ghana. I mean, but the president of Ghana was, was on his game. I mean, he was very matter-of-factly. I mean, he, he couched it in terms of historical terms. And so Macron could say nothing but listen. He didn't like it, but he could only listen. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that the president of Ghana spoke up and to state what we all obviously already know. But I just wish, in addition to you know, his critique in terms of the West um, exploitation of Africa, that he would talk about the importance in terms of uh, 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 Central Bank of Africa. So I think until you know, Africa controls its own currency, the reality is that to some extent it's going to be dependent upon the West. So to get away from that uh, totally, I think you're going to have to have a situation where Africa controls its own currency and in the process controls its own commodity. So, but I encourage uh, the, the uh, president of Ghana, uh, Mr. Addo, you know, for his tenaciousness and for his ability to speak truth to power. All right. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Thank you. Um, I think, you know, we'll be, I should mention the, the presidency situation with the impeachment and 
you know, they're holding up the actual sending the impeachment over to the Senate, um, and which which produced a, uh, um, this uh, official who 90 minutes after Trump got off the phone uh, with his godfather type tactics, um, they started 90 minutes later they began shutting down giving out the aid. Uh and so they have they have people if they would call them they, they could testify to that, but Trump won't let them so this should be interesting. Uh meanwhile, um Brother Haki sent sent out that article which he was talking about in, in his introduction, uh um I, I I found it very interesting. It's uh, let me read a little brief section of it. It says, Dis- despite despite strong job growth and a 50-year low unemployment rate, nearly half of all American workers qualify as low wage, according to a Brookings Institute analysis published last month. The report found that 53 million Americans between the age of 18 to 64 accounting for 40% 44% of all workers qualify as low wage. Their median hourly wages are $10.22, and median annual earnings are about 18000 So that, you know, median meaning half the people are above it and half the people are below it, and that's uh, wage, hourly wages of $10.22. Of these 53 million Americans uh, between the ages of 18 to 64, over half of them are earning less than $10.22 an hour, and uh, over half of them are earning less than $18,000 a year. And I think that shows that, you know, the situation under capitalism is not good for the working class. Thank you. Yeah, call working class no more, Moses. I think they call it working poor. But those with those figures you just gave. We you know in this economy ten dollars or twenty two cent an hour, eighteen thousand dollars a year. Um is is similar similar essence. It's all about, you know, still put in the category of poverty. So, um you yeah, I think your Ig William did an excellent job in the book. Type of capitalism slavery, where he documented and shows that um, the transformation of slavery went from outright um, outright physical um, domination to labor to slave wages, which is in essence said the same thing. There was just a form in terms of a different form in terms of how they were enslaved, enslaved the world population, and given the illusion of freedom. And now it's become just this grip where you continue to uh, be going in circles in terms of trying to uh, alleviate ourselves from this, this oppression that we face. But wait, panelists, let's go back a little bit. Brother Anthony, you have made talk a little bit about this question of this recent uh, executive order that was signed by Donald Trump in terms of there can be no no discussion, there be no cannot be no opposition to, cannot be no talk about or criticism on the so-called design of the state of Israel without colleges and universities running the risk of losing their financial support. 
how can how kind of um what kind of effects you think it will have on this population as a whole when you're talking about particularly the population who are very active in in terms of political activity? Uh, It's an effort to stifle it, I think. And uh, and I think it it has an an effect on college-age youth, those who go to college, those who... um, who who've, who have uh, advocated uh, support for the just cause of the Palestinian people? It uh, it make it makes it a a, a lot more difficult for them because they risk uh, losing funding, and uh, a lot of colleges are very have uh, are very heavily dependent upon federal funding for their survival. And uh, so I think uh, so. I think it, it it has a devastating impact, especially on uh, on uh, particularly on the HBCUs, and it's going to make it a lot harder, uh, you know, for those uh, for those who are opposed uh, to Zionism and uh, and uh, you know and uh, uh, supporting. You know justice uh you know for the Palestinian people to educate on uh, uh to educate people on uh on the dangers and the destructiveness of Zionism you know, I just yeah, I interest you go back go ahead. Yeah, I, I I I I think in addition to to what uh, Brother Heffern is saying, I think one of the things I think we 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 have to take in consideration is that uh, this Donald just this, this Orange Menace is not as unintelligent as we think he may be. Uh, one of the things that he does in terms of highlighting, you know, just um, this, this policy in terms of you know not you know uh, you know non critique, you know of uh, of Israel, it's sort of put into place. Part of Israel or, 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 or Jews in a very difficult in a very difficult situation because if essentially what he's doing, he's he's putting he's placing the Jews on his side. That's what he's doing. In the process of placing the Jews on his side, he's more likely to alienate a lot of people out here who don't particularly in, embrace this whole the Zionist uh, regime of Israel Israel. But that's precisely what he wants because if you can invite the, if, if the Zionists is part of your coalition. Then what happens is you effectively set them up for attack, and so I think it's, a, it's it's part of his part of his genius because one of the things that he wants to do is he essentially he wants to rid this country of all people he perceives quote unquote as undesirables, and in, in, included in that group is also the Jews. Now clearly he has strategically he has a real interest in terms of you know um, the designers being part of the coalition. In fact, designers play a big part in terms of running the American government. And there's no question about that. But if you can create a scenario in which people actually hate Jews by saying that Jews, in fact, down with his policy and they support his policy across the board, then you alienate, your anger. A lot of people in the society who are saying, how dare these people sit here and support Trump given what he's doing to this country. He's destroying this country, but you tell me that these Jews support Trump? So in their mind, these Jews become the enemy. So I think it's, it's a sound bit of strategic maneuvering on the part of Trump, you know, to sort of uh, – uh, to sort of um, Get people uh, to 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 uh, hostility toward toward Jews in a way in which a lot of people, a lot of Jews may not even understand that what he's doing is 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 just part of a, a grander strategy. 
So I think that I think that's his real motivation in terms of doing what he's doing. Because the whole point is in terms of we talk about the Zionist, you know, uh, control of, of government, or at least Zionist participation uh, in terms of the U.S. government. That's well documented. So this question in terms of, you know, vilifying folks who, quote-unquote, critique the Zionist regime of Israel doesn't make any much sense at all. Because the bottom line is that when you talk about relationships, the Zionists and the American government have a solid relationship. So that's the, no need to highlight that. That's all understood by everybody. So when you bring it out to people that, in fact, this relationship exists, it angers a lot of people. But half, that's what, that's what Trump wants to do. He wants to anger a lot of people. He wants to isolate Jews. He wants them to increasingly be seen more and more as the enemy of the state. So I think that he has more, more insidious motives in terms of doing what he did. I don't think he's particularly concerned about you know, Jews per se. Uh, I think it's just part of a grand strategy. So I think people got to understand that you know, when, when Trump says something, don't take it at face value. Remember, he has advisors. You know, have people like Steve Miller who work with him, who advises him in terms of strategically the best way in terms of achieving ends. So I think we're very, very careful. You know, when he says something, not to take it at face value. Yeah, just to add to your point, Brother Aki, I think one of the things that came from the article um, also was that they talk about the contradiction in terms of um, Trump signing this executive order to appease those you know, certain Jews for their financial support, but at the same time, they recognize that that same order that he signed may also alienate some of his own supporters because we know that the ultra right and the white wing, uh, um, white wing confederacy movement and those factions, they are also one to stop, um, stop the raised criticism often about the state of Israel. So they also can be come under attack or being accused of being anti-Semitic. And I thought I was just real interested looking at the dichotomy in terms of heal the group or the movement that he has helped generate the the Europeans to the right off the right. They are definitely anti um anti Israel. But at the same time he was signed such a um policy that would be directly opposed to what they are against and they are part of his major base. So I thought that would be interesting. But I think one of the other key points in terms of the vector order, I think it become all state battle uh, where does this whole question of freedom to speak, uh, First Amendment right to be free to speak while being uh, penalized? I think at some point, you know, people have to raise um, that battle between the issue of, you know, having the right to speak when that becomes your right to speak at the First Amendment versus, you know, this whole idea that you are speaking to some kind of or elaborating some kind of criticism that is that is anti Semitic. And furthermore, another issue I think comes with this is the question of who has the right to define. Because again, the Zionist constantly changes and continue to make different definitions. You know, what is the basis of criticizing the state? How does that equate to being anti Semitic in anything? And I think that's a, another battle that people need to be aware of. You know, how they constantly redefine what is and isn't. Yeah, but you know what, Brother Africa, in terms of in terms of, you know, this attempt to cool you know, to, to quell speech, the bottom line is that, you know, you know, you know, in terms of policy, there is no directive that's going to prevent people from actually talking. 
the most he can do in on the college campuses is encourage or compel the administration to try to censor in terms of you know who has access you know to the to 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 diverse buildings for the purposes of having you know meetings they can do that but in terms of calling speech per se in terms of as though people can actually you know, on a formal level actually talk to each other in terms about zionism that somehow that this policy is going to actually be capable of actually doing that. It can't achieve that. That's the thing. So I think this this public announcement that, you know, we're going to to penalize those universities that allow any critique of Israel, I think is more for public consumption. I think that public consumption has anything to do with what you talk about in terms of the right wing. And they're virulently, you know, anti-Israel. And they would like nothing more to destroy the state of Israel. Of course, Israel the Zionist element in Israel has its uses, but they have no love for the for the for the Zionist either. And so, therefore, I think that Trump understands that. And so, therefore, in in, in making this this public proclamation, you know that uh, that the, the Jews are with us. I think he angers a lot of people. It's precisely what he wants to do. He wants to anger these people. You know what I'm saying? So now, what happens is that you got a situation in America where increasingly. Not only do you have alternate right in terms of people who are anti-Jewish, increasingly you have people who are not necessarily alternate right who are also becoming anti-Jewish simply because Trump has aligned the Jews with his policy, and that is the very that, that is the very real concern we have to understand in terms of his strategizing. So this guy is he's not the brightest he's not the sharpest tool in the shade, but when it comes to strategy, apparently whoever he's talking to is give, you know conveying to him a lot of very useful information. And strategically, if you don't actually think about what he's saying and what he's doing, you may miss the point uh, in terms of what, he's, what his real motivation is. And so in that sense, you've got to say this guy is someone who's a grand strategist in terms of being able to come up with these kind of policies, and people actually think that these policies are benign. But in fact, they're not. They're geared toward making sure that you accelerate the kind of hatred against the Jewish community uh, that the right wing perceives, uh, perceives as, as favorable. So I think that, you know, Trump, you know, uh, you know, again, when, when he says something, don't take it literally. Understand that's a much symbol, symbolic meaning behind what he says. And understanding symbolically what he's really saying is key in terms of understanding you know, his real motivation. Okay, anybody else would like to say something on this subject? Could I bring in uh, Brother Jabari and ask him what's going on in his world community? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd like to say that Trump, Trump, you know, is a fascist. And he, in order to carry out his agenda, he learns who his opposition is. And he's very clear in his speeches in Florida over the weekend and stuff. He's very clear about who who the problem's coming from. Obviously, communists, socialists, and progressives. He's 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 calling out progressives. Uh, I mean, he's very clear that that he's. He, in order to do what he wants to do, he's got to get rid of certain people. Thank you. Or keep them divided, which I think is an, uh, 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 another purpose behind trying to, uh, you, you know, get the Jewish population allegedly aligned on their side, because it further it further fragments uh, the working class even more than it already is. Okay. Let let me bring in our other panelists, Alice or Knight, Brother Zabari, welcome to Africa on the Move. What's going on in your world community? Peace, everybody. Can you hear me? 
Yes, we can. Okay, very good. So recently I came across an article um, in regards to what a group of students had, a continuous of students had done at George Mason University. It has become public knowledge that there's one of the student organizations that receives funding from the right-wing um, financiers, the Koch brothers. And these particular students wanted to get information as to what were the details surrounding the financial dealings that the Koch brothers had with this particular student organization. They ended up filing a lawsuit. When it reached the courts, the courts decided that since this was a private student organization, that that information did not have to be disclosed. Now, these particular students <clears throat> were concerned in terms of the Koch brothers' presence because they're talking about people that have the money to influence educational policy on a grand scale at that particular institution, which is interesting that this organization um, reached out to them for funding, given that this is a state-run institution. It's not a private um, college. So when you look at these kind of dealings, I know that in this age of capitalism, it's the norm, but the question becomes, what should the role of big business be in terms of education, especially public education? Because being someone who attended a publicly run university, I feel that that creates a conflict of interest in terms of we often see that colleges will reflect the perspective of whomever is donating the most money whether it's through being a sports booster or through another means. They often tend to give kickbacks to those particular institutions. And one thing you have to understand about the Koch brothers, when they make an investment in your institution, they want you to reflect their point of view. They don't want you to reflect anything that's antagonistic towards what their aims are. Hmm. In response to the position of monies coming into public universities and you don't have the right uh, to know about the fundings and the monies that comes into public universities as relates to um, being allocated to students. I always thought it was a public institution that you acquire or some kind of way it should, it is by law that it has to be some kind of way accessible and be public the knowledge that these monies um, come from, you know, that, that particular source. Yeah, but that, that policy has been changed uh, under the current uh, educational secretary. And one of the things they want, they want a certain amount of secrecy. And, and Brother Jabari is absolutely correct. When these billionaires, in particular his Koch brother, the other one died, but the one that remains, when they invest, that, you know, when they invest hundreds of millions or billions of dollars you know, in, these, in the universities, they do it particularly because they have an a idea in mind. Now, keep in mind that this is this, not only are we talking about you know, the, this money influence in terms of curriculum in the universities, in addition to that, we've got to understand that the role of ALEC play, the American Legislative Executive Committee, the role it plays in terms of making sure that they, they've created a scenario, which not a scenario, but they actually created policy in which those instructors, those professors who are, quote, unquote, left-leaning, uh, it's very difficult for them to get jobs now. And so what happens is that those professors who are right-leaning, those who are peerless-minded or pro-peerless, imperialist, those individuals tend to get the teaching jobs at universities. So, his, so what they're doing is systematically stacking the, the universities to make damn sure that the, that the, the students there don't leave them with the ability to, to critique the society, but in fact, all of this nonsense in terms of how great capitalism gets reinforced. And this is precisely what they want. This is what billionaires want. 
And so, therefore, we understand that anytime these, these people put money into the universities, then we understand that clearly it has nothing to do in terms of development of humanity. It has to do with what is in our best interest. So that is very, very clear. You know what else I'd like to respond? Yes, I want to add that that one of the the purpose of um, of of uh, uh, these institutions of higher education is to per, is to produce the leadership that will perpetuate uh, ruling class interests into the future. So uh, so actually. Uh, you know, investing in colleges and universities is like an investment, and it's also a means of of uh, control, as uh, uh, Brother Haki correctly indicated, of controlling uh, the information that is received by the students, so that students don't have the ability to think critically or independently. And I think yeah, that's and also, uh, the deeper motive behind that. Yeah, and 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 and, and, and last week we talked about the fact, you know, that um, um, we were talking about the, uh, the fact. What were we talking about last week when we were talking about the um, um, done? I can't believe the point slipped my mind. <laughs> okay, it, it'll come to me. I, I, it'll come to me. Okay, please. Let me add yes, that go, go we also body. have to consider this is a keen strategic move by the Koch Brothers Foundation because George Mason University is in very close proximity to Washington, D.C. <clears throat> Hold on a second. And one thing okay. we have to consider is that given the close proximity, they will want those kind of personal reflect their point of views to enter into politics. So you can just imagine the kind of internship and networking opportunities that people who are in this right wing think tank would have access to given the close proximity. Yeah, let, last week we were talking about the changes in the curriculum in terms of these, these historical black universities and colleges. And we talk about, you know, in, 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 in order to receive these monies, you know, from, from these billionaires. Uh, certain changes had to take place, and the chief among them was the elimination of African history departments throughout the country. And, of course, the question is, why would you eliminate African history departments, you know, at, at, at the highest level? Well, clearly, if with African history, you teach people to think, and one thing you don't want them to do is you don't want them to think. And so by teaching them that they don't have a history, so by teaching them they don't have a history, uh, you sort of reinforce this notion, you know, that the best they can hope to, to aspire to is being like the oppressor. And so, therefore, that's why it's so useful in terms of getting rid of the history on the college level, college and university level. But in addition to that, I think that when you, when you talk about the elimination of, you know, of, of, of African history, and you talk about the implementation of, you know, of things like, um, you know, a program, program for diplomats, and you talk about programs, you know, for um, 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 homeland security, homeland security, and, and all of that stuff. They clearly, they, 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 their position is that, you know, they're, they're preparing for the future. And so the best way to prepare for the future is to make damn sure that you got a populace of people who are ill-equipped to critique, to understand precisely from a historical as well as an economic standpoint exactly the kind of ch- ch- uh, changes that are taking place in society. So clearly they have a, they have ulterior motive in terms of what they do. And this is why when they give this kind of money and they do it in secrecy, it, it's all part of a systematic effort to make damn sure 
you know, that there'll be no revolution in America because they're going to try to eliminate it at its source, namely making damn sure that people at the universal level don't have the ability to actually critique, to actually think about situations as they exist. So it's part of of a grand strategy. All right, Pam, this is just part for the call. So when we come back, we're going to deal with that theme tonight, which is part three of telling the truth and fighting for freedom. You got to listen to Africa on the Move. We're going to pause for the calls, and we'd like for you to call in at 323-679-0841 and share your views and your perspectives on the very issues and concepts that we will discuss tonight as they continue to have an impact on our communities. Again, we're going to pause for the calls. We'll be right back, and you're listening to Africa on the Move.
welcome you back to Africa on the Move. And like Brother Bob Marley stated, don't become a buffalo soldier. Stop frightening other people battles and wars. So at this point in time, we're welcome back to Africa on the Move. We'll start right now in the second segment of our program. As it relates to our theme tonight, which is part three, telling the truth and fighting for freedom. And a lot of times when we talk about the presentation of history, we often get this presentation of history from a Western perspective, and it's an extension of Western history and not an extension of the history of the indigenous people. So we're going to start off tonight to talk a little bit about the history and the struggles of the indigenous people. That was really interesting article titled Bolivia. 500 Years Rebellion. It's an interesting article to written in Candle Punch on December 14, 2019. If you get a chance, please go back and check out the article. Uh, it's a lot that humanity can learn from it. So starting off, um, panelists, I'd like to just have your thought in terms of when you read this article and look at the history of the indigenous people, particularly in the area uh, the region that at that time was viewed as Bolivia, back around 1781 and before the coming of the Europeans. What were some of the similarities of that history and the history of the struggles of African people since we've been um, captivated in the West, Brother Anthony? Yes. Uh, one of the, um, well, I, I saw a few similarities in the fact that uh that the that the the the, the indigenous people in the area called bolivia were uh were communal people uh from uh you know from what i gather from this article from this history and that they had and that they had um they had a a strong relationship with the land and and like uh, and like the Africans, they had their own culture, language, history, and whatever, which was maligned by the Europeans and looked down upon as being uh, inferior. And that in order to uh, to make any progress in Bolivian society, they had to assimilate. And, uh, and 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 be like the Spanish, and uh, which were the minority group, and it reminded me some ways of um, of uh, Azania, South Africa, in terms of what the indigenous people in both areas were subject to, and um, and of course, and and what is not told. Because as you indicated, history is told from the from a European perspective, is that the indigenous people resisted this invasion by the Europeans, by the foreigners, with uh, di- di- different degrees of success over the centuries. But nevertheless, they did resist, and uh, they highlighted um, uh, uh, a particular. Uh, Bolivian indigenous leader Tupac Katari who led a rebellion in which La Paz was besieged for over a hundred days and uh, the siege ended with the arrival of the Spanish of a Spanish army 
and uh, Qatari and his wife, Bartolina Sisa, were were gruesomely executed. And uh, thousands of the indigenous people were massacred. And, uh, but, uh, and the same, but even uh, in spite of that defeat, uh, it inspired later generations of the indigenous people in Bolivia to assert their cultural identity and to assert their humanity. And uh, as a side note, I uh, I think um, Afeni Shakur named her son uh, Tupac after uh, this uh, indigenous leader. But anyway, but uh, anyway, but uh, what I take away from this article is the fact that in spite of the oppression by the Spanish uh, living in Bolivia, the indigenous people have been fighting to assert their identity and their human rights, and it culminated with the election of Evo Morales as uh, president of Bolivia uh, in 2005. Okay, Brother Haki, your response to my question? What were some of the yeah, similarities well, of how they dealt with uh, the indigenous people in the Western Hemisphere at this time, we talked about uh, Bolivia, and some of the similarities how they dealt with Africans who have been entrapped and, and been oppressed since the arriving of the Western Hemisphere under the European domination? Yeah, the similarities, similarities are many, and uh, Brother Anthony laid out a lot of the similarities. But what, what I found interesting, though, is that, you know, uh, one of the things that we, we, we can't underscore enough, but when, when, you know, but when, the, when the Spanish came to what we know as Bolivia today, uh, there was no attempt to kill them simply because they perceived to be different. Uh, their white skin wasn't a death sentence. And so the, the, the ability in terms of their humanity, in terms of understanding, you know, that this is a, these are human beings, they, they have different color skin, but they say human beings, played a large part in terms of the thinking of indigenous, you know, right there in Bolivia. And as such, you know, they treat them simply as other human beings. Uh, of course, they didn't think in terms of the, the nefarious motives in terms of the Spanish. They didn't think that these people actually, you know, befriend them and then turn around and cut them, you know, cut them, you know, then turn around and stab them in the back. So clearly this theme in terms of being stabbed in the back is a continuous theme in terms of Western interventions in, in, in lands around in, in lands around the, around the world. Uh, often coming in, you know, pretending to be friends, people embrace them, in in fact, um, you know, even teach them in terms of what they need to survive, only to have, you know, European militaries intervene for the sole purpose of killing hundreds of thousands of millions of people for the sole purpose of taking the land and resources from a people. So clearly the humanity of, of the indigenous people in Bolivia, you know, is something that uh, was, was very much reminiscent of what happened to, in terms of Africa, in terms of their embracing, you know, people who were, quote, unquote, perceived as white, uh, who didn't, didn't have any other connotations uh, other than the fact that uh, they're, they're human beings and as such were treated as human beings, different human beings, but not the, to the extent that they're so different that they should be annihilated, they should be killed. So I think that is a big, big problem. I think all second thing, I think, Brother Africa, also I think that when you look at the, the fact um, that uh, in terms of, you know, in terms of strategy, in terms of one of the things the West have been doing for a long, long time, one of the first things they did was to impregnate the women to make sure they have children who are, quote, unquote, of, of mis-ancestry. And that was very, very interesting. 
because by doing that, they they created a buffer class of individuals in whom they can tap into in terms of doing their bidding. And so this is the people who uh, who who, who uh, strategically were created for the sole purpose of not fitting into easy society. And so it served the interest of the West in terms of, you know, impregnating these women and creating this buffer class of people um, um, who deserve that purpose in terms of, you know, that, that divide between, you know, the oppressors and the oppressed. And so in the case of Africa, it's very well known in terms of this, this propensity in terms of impregnating African women for the sole purpose of having lighter skinned children, for the sole purpose of elevating them, quote-unquote, in terms of their status, for the sole purpose to create them to create a a a a a a a class of, of people who are willing to carry out the oppressor's will under the impression that simply because their skin was lighter that somehow they were somehow different than their their brother and sister whose skin were darker. So this is one of the strategies that have been employed by by the West for for a long long time, and not just but not just uh, but not just uh, in the, in the Western Hemisphere, also in the Eastern Hemisphere that happened as well. So it's all very interesting, but I, I think that, you know, we can't underscore enough, you know, the importance in terms of the humanity, you know, of the people in terms of the civilization in which they, they were a part of, and which they understood the whole is much strong that the, the the whole is much stronger than the individual. And so therefore they sought to uplift the, the group and not just the individual. And so philosophically Europeans had a very difficult time with that. And so in their minds, these people who sought to create uh, a, a, a this this balance in life they saw it not as a as a tangible, as a positive. They saw it as a negative. They saw it as being weak, and so therefore, in their mind, they were uh, they were the perfect candidates candidates for destruction, simply because they were perceived as weak. And so, what we understand the strengths in terms of being able to care for one another, to help one another, to love one another, the Western Western world sells as, as a weakness, and so therefore, the the the, the result was the extermination of large you know millions of people simply because they were received as somehow weak. So even today I find it ironic that people still have that, that mentality. Even in the even in the African community you still have this mentality that people who actually care about other people are somehow weak. And so I, I find that extraordinary. And uh, I can certainly understand in terms of the in the Western context in terms of that mindset in which people who care about other people are perceived as weak. That in other words that the individual is all supreme, that individual is more important than anything in the world I can certainly see why a society which says that caring about everybody is the kind of society we see as preferable. I can see why the West would say, no, 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 no. Any society that cares about everybody is a weak society simply because the individual doesn't get the opportunity in terms of being him or herself simply because the focus is on everybody. So I can understand why they would see it as weak. But what I don't understand, Brother Africa, is how Africans, you know, who who, who in in turn, uh, who – Embrace this kind of mindset in terms of you know what is what defining what is weak, and actually have the audacity to say to people that the pure fact that you're talking about support you know for for humanity or support for everybody, talking about a just world, to perceive it as weak, I find it extraordinary. Particularly given the fact when you look at the historical oppression of African people, then how in the world could you then therefore say that being an individual is the highest expression of humanity when clearly when you look at in terms of the overall condition of humanity. When you look at it in terms of the suffering in, in, in the malaise and the uh, dislocation and the, uh, in, in, in all the all the injustice associated with individualism, how would you want to then turn around and be a part of that mindset which says that it's all about the individual when you know what individuals are capable of doing? So it's, it's a very, very interesting paradox. But anyway, the, 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 the historical, the, the native uh, Bolivians, 
sort of epitomizes this, this, this understanding in terms of, you know, we're all in this together. You know, um, as that's old term they use and 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 in South Africa and it, and it slipped my mind. But as a term they use and say which, which says that what I do to you affects me, and so therefore we have a obligation to care for one another. So um, uh, Mbutu, um, um, uh, um, that's not it. Anyway, in a bit. So 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 I, I, I so my hats off to to the indigenous Bolivians in terms of their mindset, in terms of the kind of cultures that they practice. And in, in the course, uh, that culture, that understanding of their culture was destroyed, you know, by the Spaniards. But ultimately, you know, with help of people like um, um, Tupac Katari, you know, he educated his people in terms of importance, in terms of understanding who you are and what you are and what you stand for. So, you know, um, my hat's off to the uh, to the indigenous people of Bolivia. Well, Zavari, um, what did you take from this article? Clearly, one can talk about the importance of people rediscovering um, their their roots, their history, and learning from it as being the foundation of how they should govern and move as a people. Would you agree to that 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 assessment, Brother Jabari? Can you repeat that question one more time, please? Yeah, no, I'm just in general, what did you take from the article? I think one of the things when you look at this article that's a rediscovery among indigenous people that they had their own history and their own way of looking at and interpreting nature. And from that, they realized that there is an alternative on how they could govern that society that would suit their interests. So in essence, you know, what Absolutely. did you take from this article? <clears throat> you know, you're spot on with that analysis. The one thing we have to remember, our dearly departed, dearly departed brother, Dr. Sebi, was one that was very in tune with nature you talk about changing the paradigm to look at an anti-capitalistic perspective, especially when it came to nature, he used a lot of what the knowledge that the indigenous shared with us and used the herbs and natural remedies to cure a lot of those diseases that people will spend billions upon billions on for treatments that people often say were incurable. They were oftentimes found out to be synthetic, that they were man-made. So the fact that this knowledge is not esoteric like they make it seem, but can be readily available, begs the different way it is the contradiction in terms of those that want to promote capitalism and take advantage of those resources that the indigenous offer. Because then we have to realize is what these capitalists will do is they'll take those same resources that could be used to make um, medicine to make sure that people never get sick and take it to use to make commercial products they could sell, whether it's coffee or whatever it may be. So that's why they have an interest in terms of keeping their presence there. Because you ask the question when you look at what's going on in places like Bolivia and Africa, one thing is the name of the game is to commodify everything. You want to get the best engineers to take their knowledge. You want to take the resources. You want to take whatever cultural movements they have because a lot of these so-called clothing trends might be things that they do culturally and then we take it and exploit it. We've heard this happen numerous times. So that's the name of the game is commodifying because – the value in terms of the culture and resources that are there, and rather than embracing and try to create opportunities for the world to learn from it, the name of the game is to take, take, and take. You know, Brother Moses, one of the statements they made in this article was that the indigenous people, you know, when they look back at their history, they realized that they had a history that was superior in value, in values and organization as relates to, um, you know, the 20th century reality. What do you make of that particular statement? 
in terms of they understand their values and how they view things. For example, you know, this concept of egalitarianism. They recognize there was no um there was no such thing as a man and woman is greater than each other based upon that so called biological makeup. They recognize organizations speaking the whole community must invest in each other in order to move as a collective. So they realize, you know, for their natural way of, of living and viewing things, if they would get back into that line of thinking that they will be a better nation of today than what than what they have today in terms of, you know, the community being divided, the community um being divided around the question of race, sex, class, et cetera. So what do you make of they come to the realization they had greater values than the values that are being perpetuated today in in in, in Western West in Western civilization. What's your what's your take on that? And while we're waiting for Brother Moses to respond, but in the independence, you know, I just thought that was really interesting where they, they realized from that history that their values and that organization was was not a inferior um, method of governing themselves. Y'all response to that, panelists? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think it, it speaks to the importance of culture. And the fact, and 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 they, and the importance they realized uh, as time developed, that was important to preserve that. That's why they created this program in which they started talking with their elders to learn about their history of resistance uh, to their oppression, and uh, and that's what did. And to relate to what we discussed earlier. That is what uh, the capitalists are trying to uh, to do to, uh, to to prevent in these uh, in these HBCUs from occurring. That is why they uh, they're attacking the African history programs, which the students during the sixties had demanded be created. So uh, you know, so that Africans can learn more about their history and culture. And uh, and and being deprived of the ability to learn that, we get inculcated with the uh, with the, the individualistic ideas of the ruling class, and that is why. And you, the result is you produce a people that work against their own interests. Oh, that's a that's a, that's a very good point. Uh, let me just pick up with a question in terms of working against their own interests. And one of the things when you talk about individualism and, and, and you talk about, you know, organized society as such, one of the problems is that, you know, as an individual, if, if, if your aspirations or if things that you perceive needing are more important than anything else, then what's to stop you from doing anything uh, that's destructive, you know, to others? That's nothing. Because what you're saying, the highest pinnacle is not the, in, the, the, the participation of everyone in the society, but what you're saying is that only position that matters is mine. And that is crazy. That is crazy. So when you have people like Ayn Rand talk about the fact that, you know, the highest nobility is, is, is to be an individual, it's like it doesn't, it doesn't resonate. Uh, if, in fact, you're talking about a lion society, you're talking about the lions. Now, the male lion position is that, you know, I'm on my own, and so therefore everything I have to do, I have to do on my own. But even in that context, it depends on the female lion in terms of the hunting. But in terms of the physical uh, responsibilities, 
predicated totally on the line in terms of actually doing. So when it comes to defending the, 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 the territory, that's the male's line responsibility. Okay. In that context, then of course I'm I'm sure if the line had a choice, it would say, Well, listen, as far as me fighting this battle alone, I would appreciate some help in terms of fighting this battle, you know, because it's a lot easier we work together to fight this battle. But then that's part of that's part of the part of being a lion. I mean, that is part of the uh part of the, the, the whole um I won't say conditioning, but part of the um uh the mindset in terms of what it is to be a lion. And so that's understood. But when you talk in the context of human beings in terms of the ability to understand, to extrapolate, the ability to see things in, in its entirety, and when you start talking about as an individual, that's the most important thing in the world, then it's like, wait a minute, this, there's something fundamentally wrong. There's a real disconnect between that philosophy of individualism and things like democracy, humanity, or justice. Those things cannot be achievable in terms of as an individual. Because if you think about it, if you, if in fact you know um, you're a wealthy individual and you can do anything you want to do in under rules of capitalism, so then does it makes it, it makes sense in terms of buying the politicians? That makes sense because they'll do your bidding. They'll do precisely what you want them to do. It makes sense to stack the courts with people who will give you whatever you want. That makes sense. And so when society deteriorates because these people are doing the bidding of the wealthy, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that the society is deteriorating simply because you have a situation in which you know individuals rule. And so in that context, it's, it's, it's not rocket science. It's very, very clear that if you have any system which says that it's all about individual, then you're asking, and, and, and you're asking for chaos. That's what you're asking for. And so I find it extraordinary, you know, that people don't see the irony when they talk about individualism, understanding that at the same token, if you're going to talk about irony, you know, individualism, how the heck can you talk about democracy? How the heck can you talk about inequality? How the heck can you talk about uh, 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 disparity in tactics? How can you talk about anything? Because what happens is that in the context of individualism, there's no such thing as inequality. There's no such thing as, as economic inequality. There's no such thing as uh um, um there's, 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 there's no such thing as something like homelessness because homelessness you know as far as they're concerned is an individual question and so therefore the question in terms of people working together to create homes uh to create the, not only economic base but actually to actually get together to to build it's not a question because it's all about the in, individual and so it's very easy to say well the reason why you're homeless as an individual because you know you lack drive and that's very very easy to do and so all these other Institutions or systems that impact the lives of human beings are discounted because everything is, is wicked, wicked, heavily against the individual. And so, therefore, you can simply say, well, this person is rich because they're bright, they're smart, they're intelligent, they're industrious, and so, therefore, they're, they're billionaires. But the same token, we don't talk about in terms of a system in place which, in, which in fact, gives money to the wealthy simply based upon being wealthy. And so we don't talk about tax policy. We don't talk about uh, we don't talk about deductions for, for for wealth. We don't talk about any of that stuff. We treat these individuals as somehow you know they, they achieve their merits individually. When we, you not know, understand that no individuals achieve anything by themselves, and so this notion that individuals achieve by themselves is uniquely Western. And, and you know, and so even now I think Western world are beginning to understand this whole nonsense about you know treating them individually. It's just nonsense. But too many I think in the working class who who, who, who subscribes to philosophy really believe that in fact if if you just if you're individual and you got a good idea then all is all is well and you're going to succeed without even taking consideration that even if you have great ideas okay you've got to have access to the to the capital in terms of bringing to fruition those ideas 
which means that people investing in your ideas. So you do, sometimes you don't have access to those people to invest in those ideas. So irrespective of how good your idea is, it really doesn't matter. So no one does anything individually. So this, this nonsense about individualism, you know, I think has to be put to bed and people get to understand that all these problems that we see in the society are directly attributed to individualism, and we have to understand that very clearly. Brother Moses, what you take from this article, Brother Moses? What are some of the issues or points you'd like to raise with our listening audience that are significant? Uh, thank you, man. Love, Brother Moses, for right now. Uh, let's continue the discussion. You know, um, Brother Hackey, you said something earlier about some um, tactics that the West use from time to time to teach confusion among, among oppressed people and nations. And this question of the intention that may be um, create offspring that may have that may have a biological makeup of, of, of themselves and that particular people. You know, and, they, and many times it does it by force, but recognize also today they no longer necessarily does does by force. In some countries they do, but I think a large scale, I think they have to use their propaganda psychologically to create the same thing. For example, if you look at the conditions of African people today, we're in the context of the U.S. and throughout the world, but let's just say you're U.S. right now, and you look at the social economic um, conditions that are going on in our communities that relates to how the government is responding to our interests and our needs, you will see there's a, a, a more outright brutality that our people are facing on a daily basis. But at the same time, when you watch their major propaganda tool, which is which is the TV or television, you see a lot of commercials of mixed couples. You see commercials of European men nurturing and adopting African children, and they create a scenario as if you know this is the thing to do. Panelists, what is the danger of that of that narrative being played out today as our people are in a greater sense of or in a greater need of coming more together as a unit fighting for our interests? What is the narrative? What is the what is the, the danger of those of those kind of subliminal psychological messages in this context that has been played out and its future impact they may have or the success of our people moving forward as a people? In a society in which racism is dominant, you don't have uh, true integration. Well, you have is assimilation. And uh, and what it, what it is is the fact that, that what, what's being done is uh, th- through the media, through those portrayals you just described, Brother Africa, is an attack uh, culturally and psychologically on uh, on, on the African, uh, because it, do- it uh, because it shows that it gives the idea that Africans working among themselves are incapable. Of uh, solving their own problems, they're incapable of carrying out uh, the functions of of any other human society without 
uh, a European presence of some sort. And uh, just, uh, you know, and it's a psychological ploy. One of the many ways uh, 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 they've kept us suppressed over the last uh, uh, five centuries, including uh, portraying key religious figures as Europeans, when a careful analysis of history shows that they weren't and could not have been. So, uh, so, so uh, this is uh, this is uh, uh, this is uh, uh, this cannot be seen in isolation. It's a continuum, and uh, what uh, and what they're not doing to us physically, they do. They try to do to us mentally and psychologically. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I, I, I think one of the things is that, you know. Um, you know, the, the 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 notion that you know if you just you know quit give up the struggle and just play ball you know um, acquiesce to what's going on in society you know marry you know a white woman or a white or a white man and uh, you know uh, things certainly going to be easier for you if not certain things will be easier for your child because they have the, the advantages of having white blood it, it gets absurd I mean it really gets absurd but nonetheless let's just think in terms of <coughs> in terms of the, the, the elite in, in society, and it's a thinking of uh, you know um, a lot of working cl- working class and middle income folks in society, you know who don't understand their history, who don't understand that this this, this notion in terms of um, skin color, in fact, determines who you are biologically, which has nothing to do in terms of who you are biologically, but nonetheless, people believe that it does, and so it, so it seems to me without some some real understanding in terms of the the, the history of humankind, the history of human beings, uh, you, you you fall prey, you know, to these kind of propaganda, uh, these kind of propaganda ploys, and that's and that's all it is, it's a ploy. So I, I think it does work. I, I I think that one of the things, and also when you start talking about the adopting, you know, African children, you know, what I mean white, you know, white folks adopting, you know, African children. You know the the whole thing is if if you're doing it because you know uh, you have legitimate interest in terms of the aspirations and desires or the needs of those children, that's one thing. But if you're doing it to make a political statement, and that's something totally different. And my concern is that too all too often, a lot of times, it's done to make a political statement, and it shouldn't be done at the expense of those children because once you adopt those children, knowing damn well they're given being African. That particularly in in, in in context of living in Western in the Western world, then a certain amount of racism that kid has to be um, conditioned uh, to to deal with. If the kid doesn't have so a, a adequate understanding in terms of how to deal with that racism, then it's going to destroy him on an emotional level anyway. Which means that if it's destroyed him on an emotional level, intellectually it's going to destroy him. So I think that is a, that in that in of itself is a problem. But I think all of this can be remedied if, in fact, if our people understood that history. And understand that we're capable of doing anything we want to do, and but that we have to understand the history. And so right now we have this 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 this, this colonial mindset that's so prevalent in so many of us that we can't even begin to even conceptualize the idea that we're capable of you know you know running our own society, doing things for ourselves. Uh, we we're convinced that in order in order to to get things accomplished, that we must have the assistance of white folks in terms of getting that done. And nothing can be further from the truth. But if we don't understand the history, then we tend to embrace that not that kind of nonsense. 
So, so I, I, I think that uh, the propaganda that you talk about, Brother Africa, is very, very real. And, of course, uh, and, and what Brother Anthony talked about, when he talked about the fact that, you know, when you talk historically in terms of the figures, they always happen to be white. But that's the reason why they, they, they do that. That's the reason why they do that. And one of the things I find extraordinary, when you talk about historical Jesus, you talk about him being a person of African descent. It's very interesting that uh, now that that is common knowledge among many Christians, now the churches have decided they're no longer going to talk about Jesus. Jesus is no longer a, a, a point of focus as far as Christians are concerned. Now, because they have to acknowledge that for all these years you've been telling people that he was this white hippie to find out that that's not true. So clearly uh, this, this question in terms of um, propaganda is very, very real and it's something that we're going to deal with, but we can't adequately deal with it without understanding our history. So it's that simple. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting in terms of, you know, um, I always like to say that the Western civilization have a art in terms of projecting things on other people. Um, culturally, as Anthony spoke to, and we're talking about how you use culture as a weapon, not only that can advance the people, but it can be used as a weapon against the people. In this sense, have anyone noticed that this whole notion of these these Musical shows, um, contests, singing contests, dance contests, it being now promoted, but being promoted from a psychological standpoint that they're now defining or trying to present as if people who are mimicking African culture, African artists, African songwriters, they take the same things that African culture has produced, they learn it, then they put it back out, and trying to have you believe that they are better than you are in producing your own culture and producing your own, you know, producing your own type of music. And I'm just wondering if, if people have, have encountered or have seen that being played out on a daily basis and how that can continue to have an impact, particularly on our youth of today, not understanding the games that are being played on them mentally. Um, Y'all response, panelists? Yes, uh, that uh, that is not an uh, an entirely new tactic. You're saying, uh, Brother Africa, uh, it is at least a century old, at least a century old, if not older than that. And I recall, uh, I recall from a study of history that um, that when Africans Invented uh, ragtime or uh, jazz or improvisation, whatever you know you want to call it. It was considered uh, it was considered taboo. It was considered uh, unaccess- uh, 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 you know unacceptable and something only played in uh, in houses of prostitution. However, when 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 Europeans started imitating it and learn and learned how to make money off of it, it became acceptable. It became a, a so-called America's classical music, so to speak. Uh, so so they uh, so they ha- uh, uh, this has been going on for a while. It's just that I think with the prevalence of um, social media and television, it's intensifying. <laughs> it's become more intense, and it seems more pervasive. But uh, 
but I mean, but but I mean, most of the uh, uh, you, you know a lot of a lot of musical forms uh, that Africans in the diaspora are familiar with were actually invented by uh, 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 by Africans, adapting uh, to uh, to what was available, what what you know where they lived, but. Uh, but really, but but were were, were considered taboo, looked down upon, or whatever, until Europeans started uh, started uh, uh, learning it and imitating it and packaging it themselves. And so, uh, so, so this is uh, this is an old problem. But because our youth, because of mistakes, uh, you know, uh, our generation made. Terms of not, uh, you know, educating them, they don't know that history, and because they don't know that history, it uh, it gets passed off as if as if Europeans invented all that is uh, culturally acceptable, uh, you know, uh, you, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, polite, reasonable, etc. And uh, and the only way to fight that is for us to work on ourselves to teach our own people our history and culture. No one's going to do that for us. That has to be understood. Yeah. So so when you think about um, Elvis Presley sneaking off, you know, to the black clubs and watching black entertainers perform and and duplicating their style, uh, you begin to understand in terms of the level at which you know, racist operates in society. So it wasn't until Elvis Presley saw gyrating his hips that it became a thing to do, and uh, it became exciting and raw and uh, exciting, uh, only because this is something that uh, uh, a, a white guy did. So clearly, you know, uh, the emphasis is, you know, uh, not to, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, to credit white folks, even when white folks are not the, the innovators of a particular art form. Uh, in rap music, you had uh, Eminem, of course, you know, he's the, you know, if you listen to the media, you think Eminem is the greatest rapper ever existed. So when you talk about people like Rock Kim, KRS, Big Daddy Kane, and a whole slew of others, I mean, very talented, uh, musically inclined, I mean, very gifted Tupac, Tupac, uh, in terms of rappers, you know nothing about them because the media keeps telling you that uh, Eminem is the greatest rapper of all times. Or even LL Cool J in terms of his ability, in terms of forming, you know, of being formatting rhymes. So clearly, you know, this is this is a problem, but it's all part of a, a, a it's all a part of propaganda ploy. Um, and Brother Anthony talked about Scott Joplin, the father. You know, um, we talk about ragtime music. You know, nobody knows about Scott Joplin. If you don't do research, you never know who Scott Joplin is. And if we don't teach our children who Scott Joplin is and what he means in terms of musical history, then it's not the children's fault they don't understand. It's our fault as adults because we didn't teach our children who these people are. Now, when I say rock and roll, who innovated rock and roll? Most people will probably say Jerry Lee Lewis. Of course, that's erroneous, and that's wrong, because it was Little Richard. But nobody's going to say that. So we have to understand the nature of the beast in terms of this kind of propaganda. And, uh, and it's all geared toward, the, it's all geared toward this, this notion, in the fact, that the white folks are superior and should be superior, given the fact that they're the innovators of all things. And so it, and that's, it's not just entertainment. We talk about science. We talk about math. Or we 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 talk about business. It's always white people. Even white folks are not the innovators in terms of science, math, and business. They are projected as the innovators. And so, as a consequence, you got a lot of white folks running around believing, even though they know firsthand 
that the white folks are not the innovators who believe that, in fact, being white gives them a leg up simply because they are the alleged uh, leaders in terms of or alleged innovators in terms of, you know, particular, particular, particular aspects of life. So this is a problem. And one other thing, Brother Africa, one of the things, and this is really, really gets to me. You remember back in the, the 70s, they talk about Bo Derek and how beautiful she was because she had braids in her hair. This white woman had braids in her hair. And I'm like, what? Are you serious? African women wear braids all the time. I mean, I mean, look beautiful with the braids. I mean, but no, but well, for, for well, for the black woman who with braids is something out of the ordinary. It's not, it's not beautiful. It's not, uh, it's not desirable. Uh, but it's only when this white woman put on braids, like, oh wow, how exotic, how extravagant, how great. This is beautiful. Blah 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 blah. And you can say, what the hell? You know what is what? You know, you know what the hell is going on here? And then you begin to understand the, the, the pervasiveness in terms of this racism, in terms of how it operates, you know, in Western society, and also big, big booties, big butts. Now, come on, come on, you know, listen, let's be, let's be, let's be, let's be candid, let's be very, let's keep it real, let's keep it one hundred, as Bernie Mac would say. Listen, we talk about beautiful butts. I mean, I don't mean no disrespect to any woman in the world. I mean, because all women are beautiful in their own way. But when it comes to exquisite booties, there's, there's nobody on the planet that has a booty like a black woman. I'm, I mean, an African woman. I'm sorry. I mean, I just got to keep it 100. I got to keep it real. I mean, exquisite booties. And all, I tell you, and one of the things, and I feel somewhat pleased, uh, you know, I feel somewhat, you know, uh, indignant about the statement I'm about to make. But I'm telling you, in, in, in traveling throughout Africa and seeing the different tribes, the different, different booties, Man, the beauty, I mean, the beauty of these women is just, it's just mind-blowing. It's just, wow. I mean, damn. You know what I mean? It's just mind-blowing. And so big butts have uh, always been a thing of beauty from the African community. So now, one, and historically, when the, when the whites try to put women down for having big butts, uh, now if you find a European woman with a big booty, it's like, oh, she's beautiful. She's got a fantastic ass. She's, uh, she's dynamite. You know, and it's, it's it's interesting how you when you listen to you when you listen to this, and you stop and think about historically, when you look in terms of uh, colonial America. Uh, one of the things in terms of making you know white women butts look big, they use the petticoats to make their butts look big. It's interesting, even though the indigenous the, the 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 African women who were enslaved, you know, had natural big natural beautiful big booties, you know. The white women resorted to the petticoats to make them look to make their butts look the waist small and make their butts look bigger. So there's always been some appreciation in terms of big butts among you know among the West, but they the racism won't allow them to acknowledge that, uh, you know you know so it's, it's it's very interesting, but it's all part of the the psychology of racism, and this is why one of the things when you talk about you know actually you know when you actually talk about uh, uh you know um you know participating in Western society, one of the things you got to understand is that everything is war, everything is war. And so even when it comes down to something as simplistic as depiction, the, how people are depicted, it's all war. Because they would depict these things like braids or big booty as a bad thing, but then turn around and embrace those same things when, they're, when those things are, are, are picked up, you know, you know, by, you know, by, uh, by uh, other women. So clearly, you know, uh, you, in the Western context, everything's a war. And one of the things I think the African people have been uh, resident, resident, uh, excuse me, reticent to, uh, to, to deal with this whole question in terms of war. I know it's not a good thing to deal with to think of life as a war, but the reality is that if we don't understand that this is a war, then we'll be ill-equipped in terms of actually standing up to fight this war because we don't even understand we're at war. We still think it's just, oh, well, that's just the way things are, not understanding that everything they do, 
whether it be on the battlefield or psychologically, everything they do is a, is a form of war. And if we don't understand that, we can't fight that war. And this is why we have to have institutions to fight that war. But first and foremost, we have to understand that we're at war. And so it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting question, Brother Africa. And to answer your point, Haki, it was just made a week and a half ago where Gabriel Union was on one of those um, musical shows. shows, reality shows. Yeah, tell us, right. That's produced by, um, what's up, boy? Uh, what's the European guy from, from England? Um, um, I forget his name. I don't know who you're talking about. Sam McCow. Sam McCow. Simon Cowell. Cowell, yeah. Right, right. It came out that she was recently fired mainly because of the fact they said that the way she wore hair was too African, too black. So the point that you're raising is they understand, like I say, everything is welfare. Yes, and and they into some kind of negotiation now. But, But can you dig that? They fired her on the basis of she said they were saying in her house that she wears were too black, and she straightens her hair. Now that that is right. Now, now that right. is crazy. But uh, no. But the thing is, I want I want to add that uh, that one of the first actresses to wear to to wear braids, at least publicly, was Cicely Tyson. Mm-hmm. She and she wore and. Uh, and that was before, uh, you, you know, uh, Bo Derek made it uh, made it fashionably acceptable to do so. But the thing is, though. But the thing about it, though, uh, what we're what we've been talking about for the last few minutes points to the danger of starting a history from uh, from the time uh, from from where the slave ship left us. And, uh, and, and and when we don't have a, a, a thorough understanding of our history, then we don't understand our, our contributions to science, manufacturing, industry. Um, you know, uh, you know those things that uh, uh, you know that are that are necessary for basic human life. Uh, uh, not only because of what, what, where we start our, our history, but also because for the last um, five or six centuries, our innovations have enriched other nations, other than African ones. We have contributed uh, tremendously to world civilization, but for the last uh, few centuries, our intellectual contributions have enriched other nations at the expense of our own development. Yeah, yeah, let me tell you something quickly about, about uh, uh, Gabrielle Union. Uh, you know, that is, one, that is one conscious sister, man. I mean, she, said, she told him, you know, I'm not going to be a smiling Negro. I mean, she, you know, I mean she's... She's very conscious. I mean, when she takes these roles, she actually thinks about the implications, what it means in terms of, you know, little black children growing up watching her. And so she's very clear on that point. And so you got to give take your head off to people like that in the entertainment world who understand that the kind of roles that they take does have uh, impact on young people watching it. And so that's the thing I, I really admire about her. You know, she's unapologetically, you know, African. She makes no, 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 no bones about that. You know, both her and her husband, Dwayne Wade, 
very proud in terms of who they, in terms of Africanity, very proud in terms of who they are, and uh, you know, and, and they they're willing to they show that. So I think that for for a lot of people, I think that's problematic. I think they're they're used to uh, they're used to the smiling Negro, you know, where you know you you pretty much go along and get along. You do whatever they expect you to do. That's what you do. And she's not gonna take. She's not gonna go that route. She's she's feels independent. She's very very pro African. She's very very strong, and she's simply not gonna gonna continue with a lot of nonsense. And so you gotta really take your head off to a young lady like that. And she's she's very very exceptional. I wish just wish we had more in Hollywood who understood that the roles they take does have an impact on young people who sit there and watch them screens and watch what they do and watch what they say and what and, and who they represent. I wish more and more uh, you know actors and actresses would would understand that message. Yeah, we have Brother Moses on the line. Brother Moses, any thoughts so far on some of the things you heard? I think we have lots of problems right now. So what we're going to do, this is Africa on the Move. We're going to take a pause for the cause. We're going to put on some sounds of sweet liberation. When we come back, we'll go to our next article. As relates to our theme tonight, which is telling the truth, and fighting for freedom. We're going to do that when we come back. You are listening to Africa on the Move. Catholic 
If you come from North Carolina, you are African. If you come from New York, you are African. If you come from California, you are African. If you're born all the places, Brazil, the Caribbean, islands, etc., you are African. And don't you forget that. We welcome you back to Africa on the Move. And as the host of Africa, we are discussing part three, telling the truth and fighting for freedom. We will continue the discussion as we continue to talk about this whole resurgence of the continued resistance and struggle of the indigenous people. There's a interesting article we would like to share with you. We ask you when you get a chance, please go and check it out where it is titled, Indians Shall Not Govern. It was written in Canapunt Magazine, December 4th, 2019. The title, Indians Shall Not Govern. And it gives you a pretty good idea in terms of um, some of the reasons why we are in the position we are in today as it relates to uh, the oppression that is taking place in Central South America as well as in South United States as it relates to the indigenous people and people in general. So, when I look at that article, one of the things I'd like for you to maybe talk about is what was it about the article that made Evo Morales and Hugo Chavez threatening, threatening to the oligarchy and the European elites? Okay. Um, one of the points I hear, one of the things I, I took from the article is that there is a heavy presence of indigenous people in Central and South America, and that in in most of these countries, they are not they are not governing themselves. They are controlled by a small minority of Europeans, or or or, or a compradore class called mestizos. The name uh, you know varies from country to country somewhat. But there seems, uh, um, you know, what I take from this article is that racism is very rife, particularly in in, in South America. And, um, you know, and uh, I want to share this uh, uh, quote uh, from this article. When the musical performance was announced, I... I said something to the Fed that Latin American music was very romantic, but some seem to think we only have salsa. This was my attempt at small talk. The diplomat then proceeded to tell me who who was and was not Latin American, and pointing to the photo of a needed child which graced every table, he said, for instance, that child there is not Latin America, American. 
Astonished asked, how can you say that? She is Peruvian. No, she is Indian. Latin Americans are those of us who stem from Spain and Portugal. He was not kidding, nor was he making some sort of epimistical statement on the origin of Latin languages. He was unashamedly, unsmearingly racist, making a clear distinction between himself and that poor child. Our conversation deteriorated to a point where, where, where he said those children got sick because their mothers were too ignorant to know how to care for them. Trembling with disgust, I got telling him I would not I would sit next to him no more. So uh so you know so uh, you know this was uh this this uh was a Peruvian uh you know political official a, a diplomat and he thought he and he thought he was uh he he was better uh you know than the masses of the people in Peru. So uh you know this is uh the kind of racism the indigenous people have to deal with, uh, and that is why uh, Hugo Chavez and Ava Morales were so disliked by the uh, by, by, by the by the bourgeoisies in those respective countries, because most of the bourgeoisie in the, in the Venezuela, for example, is of uh, is a is a Spanish descent. And they and and they deny that you know any any relations uh, with, with the indigenous people. Hugo Chavez was indigenous and African descent, so that's why he was part of the reason why he was so disliked. In addition to his politics, same with Evo Morales. Evo Morales is an uh, uh, is an uh, is an indigenous uh, leader of uh, uh, in Bolivia. And he was disliked by the by, by, by the bourgeoisie in Bolivia, because most of them are are are, are, are Europeans. So you have a situation, and uh, and I'm pretty sure, even though this article does mention it, a similar situation exists in Brazil. So you have a situation kind of like what you have going on in places like uh, South Africa, Australia. And uh, you know, and, and other settler colonies around the world, we have a, a European minority dominating uh, uh, and controlling the resources of the masses of the people in those areas. Well, Haki, can you take on why is it that Evo Morales and Hugo Chavez were viewed as um, a concern to the elites, the European elites? In Central and South America. Yeah, for the for the, for the reasons that uh, Brother Anthony articulated, uh, all of those reasons. Uh, in addition to, I think uh, one of the things we talk about in terms of control of resources, I think that is key. Uh, there are certain people, you know, in, in these in, in Central and South America who are certainly willing to accommodate the imperialist, uh, you know, in the West. The assumption is that if they uh, if they uh, if they uh, accommodate the imperialist in the West. There is something for them to gain, and that's true. In, in relative terms, they do get a little something in terms of their willingness to go along with the exploitation of their resources and exploitation of their people. I mean, that's very, very clear. But one thing I think we, we have to underscore, though, and I think this is important, is that when we talk about the exploitation of people, a lot of these people in Central South America um, don't necessarily see themselves as uh, uh, necessarily see themselves, you know, as the indigenous group. 
and as such, they identify more of the oppressor. And so when you have this Matizo class that Brother Anthony talked about, and who, sees, who sees this this, this uh, infusion of um, um, a white um, white DNA, for lack of a better term, infusion of white DNA, uh, uh, who sees that as somehow making them exceptional, making them different than the brothers and sisters, you know, uh, who uh, you know who don't have the uh, who don't have uh, that kind of DNA. Uh, it's very, very interesting. You know, they actually think that um, – so they see themselves as an overall part of a global power structure in which, you know, quote-unquote, white folks uh, inherently have the right to rule. And so, therefore, they don't see a contradiction in terms of being in Peru or Bolivia or, or even in America, and they don't see in terms of, you know, actually participating in the, in the suppression of your people ultimately impinges upon you as well. They don't actually see that. They're on that whole, you know, well, I'm closer to the oppressor, so therefore, you know, I'm better off, so I'll go along with the oppressor because they are my people. So clearly that is a problem in terms of, that is a problem. So, But the great thing about Hugo Chavez and Evo Morales and, uh, you know, uh, Maduro and people like that, they stand up and affirm who they are, and that's great. And one thing that really antagonized the hell out of Western leadership is when people in positions of power in the, in the so-called global South, when they stand up and proclaim they're proud of who they are, that really that really gets to them. That really gets to them. In other words, they're sending a message to the to, to the Western elite that they listen. Uh, I understand who I am, and so if you think that you're going to exploit me, I want you to understand that I'm with my people, and so therefore exploitation ain't going to happen. And as a consequence, you got people like who Chavez, Evo Morales, uh, Maduro, who stood up and said, listen. This whole economic arrangement has to change, and no longer will you be have carte blanche the right to exploit, you know, our countries. We're going to use the resources for the benefit of our people. And of course, in the, in the Western world, when they say they want to use the benefit to to benefit their people, what they're hearing, what the West is hearing, is that you're saying, what the Western elite is hearing, they're, they're hearing, you mean to tell me I can exploit you and make profit? Well, when you say that in the Western world, well, that's grounds to go to war, and so for them. They immediately put into place some plan in terms of destabilizing that government, ultimately to underthrow that, to overthrow that government, for the sole purpose of putting someone in power who is more pliable, someone who is willing to go along with the under the elite, under the guise of either you know being you know uh, Westerner themselves, or, or or someone who certainly identifies with the West. So clearly, I think uh, the reason why they hate uh, Hugo Chavez and Evo Morales is because they dare affirm who they are and to stand up on behalf of their people and to use the resources uh, to benefit their people. And not only do they affirm their right in terms of using resources to benefit their people, by doing so they actually improve the lot of their people. So as a consequence, people today have access to education, uh, to housing, um, you know, to food, those things are so they have access to. It's because of the, uh, the sacrifices of people like Hugo Chavez, Morales, Evo Morales, and Nicolas Maduro and people like that uh, who take a stand, you know, on behalf of humanity, on behalf of their people, to make all this possible. Of course, that is something that the West does not want to hear. So no one is surprised that they are very antagonistic toward those kind of leaders. Brother Moses, what's your take for this article? We must have lost them completely. All right. Um, you know, in terms of the title, I don't know if you're interested with it, Say the Indians shall not govern. Who is in their rightful mind 
can make indecision on who shall be governed when people cannot govern themselves. What people cannot govern themselves? Is there such a thing where people cannot govern themselves? Or is this another false creation of West uh, of Western Europe or, or the West creating a concept that on a certain type of people need to be governed? Brother Anthony? Yeah, it's a creation. Uh, uh, it's a creation of, uh, of of Europeans, definitely. Uh, let's see, and uh, you know, and what and and what it, what it, when an implication is, they don't. They uh, the the settler colonists in in these countries don't think the uh, think the indigenous people are capable of uh, governing themselves. Similar to the attitude that they, that they have about uh, the uh, you know uh, uh, pa- uh, the, the the Palestinians in Palestine and the uh, the uh, and the, the the Africans in uh, in in, in the South Africa. In other words, in, 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 in other words, in the mind of these settler colonialists. Uh, uh, Africans uh, and other indigenous people aren't civilized enough to rule and govern themselves. And also, they have resources that they want uh, to control. For example, Venezuela has vast reserves of petroleum, and and, uh, it was discovered that Bolivia has a lot of lithium. And uh, and that's what the and 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 as we discussed earlier, capitalism is about control of resources, and uh, and the capitalists want to control the resources, uh, you know, uh, you know, of these countries, and they'll work with the bourgeoisie in these countries in order to try to get that control. That is why they're so, trying so hard. Uh, to topple the government of the PSUV in Venezuela under the leadership of Nicolas Maduro. And so those people they can't buy, they try to uh, they, 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 they try to overthrow. You know, Brother Haki, thank you, Brother Anthony. You know, Brother Haki, I think that in this article it raised a fundamental issue that I think that uh, we all must answer. And we all must um, be accountable to And at the end of the article, it raised the issue of what a person would have done if they were living during a time when Western Europeans came to the West and began to dominate this particular region and area. And I'm saying, if you look at the same conditions and contradictions and oppression that were going on two, three hundred years ago by, by the West, it still exists today. So my question is, if you see this going on, what would you have done back then, and what would you do today? Because this is the same thing that's going on today. You have a response to that, Brother Hakeem? Very difficult to say, Brother Africa. It's very difficult to say. Uh, you know, um, a lot would depend on my consciousness at the time that they invaded. Uh, you know what I mean? I, I, it's hard for me to, to speculate in terms of, you know, uh, whatever I have done, because the conditions, I don't know what the conditions would have been. Uh, so it's very difficult to say. Uh, I, I know that historically speaking, it's always been 
the small minority who actually stand up and, and fight against injustice. But overwhelming numbers tend to capitulate. They tend to go along with whatever the powers that be want them to do. So I know that's historically always been the case. I would like to believe that if I was along around that time, you know, when they when they when, they, when the West first invaded the, the the global South, I would like to believe that I'd be among those who took a stand and say, you know what, uh, no, we can't we can't accept this. That we have to resist. Uh, I would hope. But I, I don't know. I, 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 but I, I can't. I can't within any any um, specificity say you know that in fact without a doubt you know that would be the case because I don't know what the conditions are. I don't know my level of consciousness at that time. I don't. Uh, it's a lot of things, a lot of X factors. So I don't know. But I think it's a very interesting question because I think that oftentimes people say, well, if I backed that, I would have. I would have. I'd have did this. I'd have did that. But then when you look at it and you fast forward and you look at what's happening now and you look at what people's response to depression here in America and you look at it in terms of their their um, uh, uh, resistance to take a stand, then you sort of realize that people are just talking. You know what I mean? Uh, so, you know, um, but, you know, but I, I think it's a very difficult question to ask. But nonetheless, it's a very, very important question to ask. Brother after your response to that question? What would you have done uh, then, and what would you do today? Or would we be also and accepted? Yes, go ahead. I'm not. I'm not sure because I don't know whether I would have uh, w- would have done things any differently than than, than what our ancestors did at that time. I don't know where. I don't know where. where, where uh, uh, both whether where where I would, where I would be at consciously. How well, how would I respond uh, to the terrorism I was sub- subjected to? Would I have, uh, you know, would I would my consciousness be where it is today? That I don't know, and uh, I do know now uh, what 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 uh, that 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 I'm more determined, you know, to defeat the forces of imperialism. Than I was than 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 I was uh, to, uh, uh, you know decades ago, but in terms of how I would have handled it then, I I really don't know. I would like to think I would have at least uh, been a part of the of those forces that would have resisted. All right, Pam. This is what we're gonna do right now. We're gonna pause for the cause, and when we come back, we're gonna do our final thoughts for tonight. You gotta listen to Africa on the moon. Fight, 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 fight against the party. We got to fight, 
Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Hackey, your final thoughts for tonight. Yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, the situation, you know, is 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 becoming very extremely dangerous. And I, one of the things is that the kind of maneuvering that takes place behind the scene, you know, oftentimes, you know, we're not privy to the kind of maneuverings that are taking place behind the scene. So I definitely encourage people, you know, to read as much as you possibly can in terms of what's going on, but specifically, you know, this White House in terms of the kind of policies that they're enacting and what it means in terms of the the the, the, the future of humanity, um, you know. Uh, but, you know, I think that um, specifically, you know, African people, you know, have to understand, you know, that uh, this war that we keep talking about is real. And so this war, because it takes many, many different, many different facts, many different shapes, we have to understand that it's war nonetheless. And so whether that strategy is one of psychology or one of material deprivation or in terms of propaganda, in terms of uh, propagating, you know, negative uh, stereotypes of African people, we have to understand it's all indicative of war. And so we have to, we have to understand and we have to begin to strategize in terms of the fight that war. And it's very, it's that simple. And as always, I encourage people, you know, to unravel the matrix because it is key in terms of our longevity in society. And having said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Aki, for your contribution to today's program. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My final thought for tonight is that we must study our history and we must get organized because we cannot defeat our enemies without uh, permanent political organization. Uh, to learn more about the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, please visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org or call us at 202-246-4896. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you, Brother Andrew, for your contribution to today's program. And we'd like to thank all our supporters, listening audience, to our weekly program, Africa on the Move, and to remind you that you can hear us every Sunday from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please spread the word. And remember, while information you cannot thank, and while organization you cannot thank clearly, if you try, we try to, we try to come and provide you with information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation, to help liberate the people and help liberate humanity for all the various forms of oppression. So until next time, let's all remember to strive to go forward, Apple, backwards, level, and pan-Africanism is a key. It will set all Africans free. Until then, we'll see you next week and take you back home to Mama Africa.
thank you for your welcome. We have been allotted uh, half an hour, and uh, within this half an hour, we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s and its relationships of the 80s and relevance to the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60s and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott, came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. Thus, if we are to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance 
All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are, served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> and one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. 
This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you. Once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who, once having made gains, are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. That was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in a society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in a society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, 
bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus we must not confuse ourselves, the job of students is clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. <clears throat> uh, thus, students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area and as a mobilized area there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that. Power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. 
Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the, power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know us Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populist. We did work for the populist. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interest with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interest. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interests of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interests as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. 
Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Nick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there, with one fighting against the other simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you're always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. 
He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on a college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Because <laughs> he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind, even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness. If you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. Today, the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say, if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus they themselves have come to demonstrate the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is of course the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself, but people, however, can repeat their mistakes, yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question, and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have change and will have change by any means necessary. The final point then. The final point then. You must not become confused by the American capitalist system, which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> of, course. of course. 
you a volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? But if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here yeah, then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America they say our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the clear poise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor, we're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down, we're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.